From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. Dina Dart is a Native American consultant and teacher who confronts the incongruities between public understanding, representation, and true acknowledgement of Native peoples, their cultures, histories, and contemporary lives. A consultant, teacher, you have many, many hats. Thank you so much for being here today on The Grapevine. Thank you for having me, Barbara. It's great to be here. I want to start with a personal note, which is that I was introduced to the concept of decolonization maybe 15 years ago or so when my son came home from school and had taken a class on decolonizing the mind, and I was questioning what that was. It was kind of a new understanding, but it did help me understand it a little bit, and I really appreciate you being here to educate me on that term. And I'd just like to start, if you could, with just your personal background. Let's start there and, and go into it. Yeah, you bet. So haku, haku, shumawish, tipa shumawish. Um, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, the urban sprawl of Los Angeles, and um, my mom's family identifies as coastal Chumash. We're enrolled with the coastal band of the Chumash Nation. And as a child, I, I never saw our culture or anything about our people represented in school, in the places that we visited, the missions, um, the, you know, any public, any signage. And that always seems strange to me to, to be a, from a people that had, you know, been the first peoples of that place and never, and just be, our culture just completely erased. And so although it was odd to me, it, it, it was clear that there wasn't anything that I could do. And and I didn't lose sleep over it. But <laughs> but as I uh, returned to school, um, I, I went back to school in my late 20s, and, um, and I took anthropology classes, all the classes I could. And as I was doing that, I started learning more and more about our culture because my mom, too, had been really separate from her family in Santa Barbara and, and learning about the culture. So it was later in life that I sought out community, um, sought out folks from the, the Chumash community and um, really started grounding myself in the worldview, the history, the values of our people. And that led me on this journey to the University of Oregon um, because there uh, was a professor there. He's, he's retired just a year ago. John Erlinson in the anthropology department who worked really closely with my tribe and wanted to mentor me. And also there was a, an archaeological collection from a site in Santa Barbara that he was going to analyze. And the tribe had asked him to bring someone to be sort of the overseer of that collection and make sure that it came home after it was analyzed. And so I was selected to do that. So I came here in 1999, finished my bachelor's, and um, and then went on to get my master's and my PhD under the supervision of John Erlinson, but then others, our dear friend Alice Parman. And she was my, she was my road into uh, museums and museum studies and 
I really I saw how museums as sites for learning, uh, informal learning, sites where people could get in touch with truths that they're not learning in their K-12 education um, as a place for that intervention about who we are as a people. So I just pursued that. I, I also met and married my daughter's dad while I was here uh, finishing my undergrad, and um, and so that's why I decided to stay and pursue my, my master's and PhD here rather than going back to California. As we all know, that when you have a child, that kind of anchors you to place, and um, so I've yet to go back to California to live, but um, I'm still very close with my community, and still I'm getting ready to open an exhibition that I can tell you about later. I definitely want to hear about the exhibition. Okay. I want to hear about museum work, too, because a lot of questions are coming to mind about just repatriation and et cetera mm-hmm. and, and yep. objects. I'd like to start first, though, with decolonization and what what that is and the work you do around it. You bet. As a Native professional, as a museum professional and a scholar, the idea that just making visible the invisible first peoples seemed paramount to me. I mean, I I found myself um, constantly educating people about the local native life and cultures and, you know, people asking me to speak for all Native Americans throughout time. <laughs> There's just such a, an overarching ignorance in this country about the colonization and genocide of the First Peoples. And as I entered the professional world, from it was bad enough in graduate school, but then um, in my first two museum positions at the Burke in Seattle um, at the University of Washington and then the Portland Art Museum, there were just constantly people that I had to educate. And, you know, it, it just became clearer and clearer that that, that education wasn't, the, it shouldn't be the responsibility of Native people to decolonize, to educate, um, to help people to see that there are many aspects of the Western world and this Western worldview that are killing us and killing the planet. I believe that you can't decolonize without a very clear understanding and commitment to the native people of the place where you live, right? And so there are lots of, you know, it's a it's a buzzword, you know, decolonization has become something that everyone's doing, decolonizing yoga, decolonizing the mind, decolonizing whatever. Um, the first step in decolonizing is recognizing the people who were actually colonized here, right here, and, uh, you know, and from that, you know, once you get a clear understanding of the history and and the genocide that occurred where you live and work, um, then we can start looking at the way it has affected all of us. And um, and looking at how it affected all of us is, is definitely part of it. But Native people can't do that work alone. And to assume that because you are a member of this one group— so you can just then tell me how it is for all of the groups. Correct. Just doesn't work. At, yeah. at, its, at its most, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So you've been involved with museum work, and, how, and you have an exhibition coming up. But how does this kind of work move into museums and your work there and, and what we see? 
Yeah. So, I mean, at the same time, I recognize that decolonization work and helping people to understand their positionality, their settler privilege, their, um, you know, their role in the ongoing settler colonialism. That's the sort of internal work of organizations and even individuals. But the external work, the sort of public teaching happens in those informal learning environments. And I I really have a lot of respect for the work that museums can do. Um, Not necessarily (laughs) the museums themselves, because many are perpetuating these myths of the, uh, you know, um, extinct Native American or the, the, the authentic Native Americans only lived in the past, you know. Just these really skewed understandings that that continue to perpetuate harm on Native people, right, and um, and are part of the reason, and that's what my dissertation did, was looked at how museums are absolutely complicit in settler colonialism, the reassertion of that power dynamic, the reassertion of the the Native people are gone, and therefore we don't have to shape policy related to them, we don't have to acknowledge their presence in um, in any aspect of our lives. So those are the sites, the public sites for decolonization. Um, if the first phase of decolonization is to know your local, the local Native history, um, start seeing Native Americans in your community, given that they were displaced for us to be here, and myself included, because I'm not from here. So I'm a guest in these homelands. And so I position myself to be of service to those people and trying to rebalance our relationships with the land and the people of the land, which in my humble opinion (laughs) has to happen for us to have a a healthy planet. Like we have to, you know, we have to reconcile. We have to reckon with the past that occurred here. I'm a museum nerd through and through. That's the work that I that I love. But I saw this deep need for people to at least begin their their journey to learn and understand and get grounded in um, in the history of the place where they where they walk and sleep every day. You talked at the very beginning about the John Erlinson and having artifacts and then returning them. Yes. So where's the line <laughs> between? returning them, and also knowing that it's helpful often to go to a museum exhibition, not perhaps a traditional one, but some form for there to be perhaps some artifacts? Or how how do you draw that line of not returning everything, but allowing it to be on display as an educational process? Yeah, that's a great question for me, because that's literally the, the work that I've done is looking at you know, how are museums even relevant? Why don't, yeah, why don't all those objects go back into the hands of Native people? Uh, you know, it's it's not feasible for every single thing to go back to Native people um, and, um, and complicated. Many of the objects held in museums don't have uh, pro- a provenance. They don't, a lot of museums don't know where those things ca- came from. Um, so there are situations where it's difficult to repatriate. Um, currently, the laws only mandate that that museums repatriate human remains, funerary objects, and 
items of cultural patrimony um, and hu human remains and those funerary objects for you know is pretty straightforward but the items of cultural patrimony that the tribes have to prove that that item needs to return in order for them to continue a practice an important you know um, community practice and that was held communally it's really difficult to to prove that um, and so I feel like that middle line is working closely with Native Americans. Museums need to work closely with Native communities, form relationships with those people, and develop mutually beneficial um, programs and, um, and access and in every area of the museum, right? I, I actually just completed and launched in May uh, the Standards for Museums with Native American Collections with a group of committed Native museum professionals and allies in tandem with the American Alliance of Museums, and we launched it officially in May at the, at the national convening. And those guidelines actually department by t department provide recommendations for good solid collaborative processes with native communities identifying who those people are and how to you know how to engage how to outreach with them how to host them when they when they're there at the museum what kinds of things could be done um, to shape policy to be more amenable more in alignment with native people so that's like that that point that tension point has is has been where I've been for the last 20 years uh thinking about how can museums like be of use be a resource for native people and what would have to happen internally in those museums for that to happen and so that has culminated in this document which is pretty exciting and you have an exhibition coming up. I do, yeah, at the Autry Museum of the American West in Los Angeles. It's right across from the L.A. Zoo. Um, it is the Gene Autry collection and legacy, um, but the Autry Museum uh, acquired the Southwest Museum collection a couple of years ago, and so now they're sort of the Cowboys and Indians Museum. <laughs> <laughs> Great, perfect. <laughs> May there be healing. Uh, and, um, and for some seven to ten years, um, the director was the founding director of the National Museum of the American Indian. So it has a very strong Native presence now. And there's a, a, the chief curator is, is, is Native, and there's another curator that's Native. And so I've been working with them for three years to um, develop an exhibition based largely on my dissertation research that these are the stories that native people are telling and in California along the mission route there are no federally recognized tribes because of those missions right so that story needs to be told in a comprehensive way in a multi-tribal way and, um, and to shine light on the fact that the missions uh, brought not only significant change to the people but um, but exploring whether or not that was genocide.
you know, and so we don't shy away from that word. We really unpack it. We show the kinds of uh, cruel punishment and um, and essentially enslavement that happened at the missions. And then the subsequent eras and then a, a section on reclaiming El Camino, all the things that Native people are doing today to reclaim the land, to, um, to perpetuate their cultures into the future. But um, in each area of the exhibition, we show resistance and revolution as well. So the missions often present the story as um, Native people were passive receivers of, of the cross, you know, of, um, of the religion, and that's just not true. So we've got a timeline of all the revolts from Baja. You know, the El Camino Real goes deep into Mexico, and so we talk about the connections between the indigenous people in what is now California and the indigenous people of what is now Mexico. These people were moving back and forth along that coast for thousands and thousands of years. And um, and we in the U.S. have kind of forgotten that those are our relatives. And so I um, really shine a light on the way that Native labor is still exploited, except that now it's mostly the people south of the border, that Native children are still being taken from parents, except now that's happening south of the border. Um and just really draw the connections between what we endured um, in the 17 and 1800s and what they're enduring now to try to motivate people into action. A lot of your work is with Live Oak Consulting, and I know you work with organizations. I know you work some with people in terms of helping people like me who, who is not a Native heal a relationship with land, create leadership for natives, just kind of decolonize, as it were, decolonize my mind and myself. And I'm not asking you, of course, to go, oh, here, Barbara, here's what you do. But what are, <laughs> where do we go and, yeah. and be involved? Yeah, that's a great question, too. You have such great questions. Um, <laughs> well, what we do, um, the, the process we walk folks through, and um, historically, we've worked mostly with organizations, but we have an open enrollment now every month um, that is uh, gaining steam. We teach the core principles in a three-hour training that you can enroll in, register for, um, at our website, liveoaknative.com. But what we do essentially is with the Decal 101, we're just unpacking what colonization is, what is settler colonialism, uh, some vocabulary. And then we talk about stereotypes and misconception and misconceptions and how those lead to cultural appropriation. And, um, and then we talk a bit about settler privilege and how it's different from racial privilege. And, um, and that's an important one. It's usually that exercise is usually very impactful. Um, and then we talk about allyship and how can you position yourself? How can you become more aware of um, the experience of Native people historically and today um, so that you can position yourself to, you know, leverage some of that privilege in their direction and, um, and create spaces for Native leadership? Because that has to happen. N Native people can't be responsible for um, shaping all of the U.S. state and local policy, right? The um, Native people can't be responsible for all of the learning that occurs uh, among 
mainstream Americans, there's so much information out there that um, we try to motivate people to access it. So it's really, it's an introduction. And then 102 is the introduction to allyship. And we go further into what it means to examine your own cultural background and positionality. And um, we give lots of examples of good allyship that are happening in this country. Um, And then we have one on moving from the land acknowledgement to a statement of accountability. The land acknowledgement has been criticized um, for being performative, and it's basically saying, yeah, we're on Indian land and we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And a statement of accountability is more, we're on Indian land, we recognize that, and these are the things we're doing um, to you know, create space, to shape our policy, um, to benefit Native lives, and, um, and care better for the land like we're guests. We've worked with large corporations to small nonprofits, and we don't discriminate. I started doing them for museums, but at this point we're doing them for everyone under the sun, which is exciting. A lot of mental health organizations and health and wellness organizations are coming to us, and it feels important, and it gives people a grounding and a, a place to start. I know you're not from here. I know that, that you're from another part of the world. And locally, one of the issues that has come up is, is the word Kalapuya and changing the name of the county. And I, and I understand also a kind of tax, I think it's called a land tax issue that's kind of around that. Can mm-hmm. you explain that and, and elucidate that a little bit? Is that something you're, is in your knowledge base? Yeah, I'm, I'm not that familiar with the land tax. I mean, some of the non-federally recognized tribes are um, have a portal on their website for paying rent, um, and that has gone a long way in um, Seattle, for instance. The Duwamish uh, are also descendants of Chief Seattle, but they're non-federally recognized, and so that means they don't have a reservation, they don't have resources that were promised in exchange for land. The other descendants of of Chief Seattle live at Suquamish, which is a federally recognized tribe. There's a lot of tension in Seattle um, because the Duwamish are operating as a tribe and um, and receiving this funding from the public, basically public donations. But with those donations, they've been able to establish a cultural center and some programs for their elders and education classes and other really useful things. Um, the So I'm not familiar with that happening in Oregon. However, I know the Chinook Nation was um, had a, a land tax for Portland. Um, I don't know if that's still active, but there are, there are tribal groups and land trusts that are, um, are seeking donations in exchange for us occupying their territory, which is brilliant, right? Um, but um, the federally recognized tribes, for the most part, have you know, a land base and, um, and means of supporting themselves through, through gaming or other business ventures. What gives you your inspiration to do the work you do? Mm. I think the thing that differentiates um, many Native people from from European descent 
Americans is the is the commitment to community and commitment to a land base. And, um, you know, at times working for my community becomes very political. It, be, it can become exhausting. Um, there are the impacts of intergenerational trauma that are alive and well in our Native communities, and that's certainly true of mine. And it it can be it can be really difficult, and it's true of me, right? And um, so it can be really difficult uh, staying committed to a community of um, your extended relatives, some of which push your buttons, you know, and and also staying committed to a place when you don't live there, and um, you know, following what's happening in that place, and then um, doing, doing your best to intervene. That commitment that I wake with, up with every day is not a negotiable. It's just there. I answer the call when one of them reaches out and I do my best to, to be present and provide what I can. And because I have this PhD, there are things that I can provide sometimes that others aren't able to. Um, not to say that I'm any kind of a hero. There's incredible work that's happening at home among our people in terms of um, the revitalization of our canoes and our language and these unprecedented uh, forms of revitalization for a, a community of people that was almost annihilated, you know. I mean, three waves of colonization and still we're landless and have no rights as Indian people and we're doing some of the most incredible things so there's that that you know that excitement that comes from being affiliated with this powerhouse uh, group of people but then the the commitment that comes from being a descendant of those people you know I'm also a descendant of the colonizing body my, I have family that were the soldiers and settlers that came north. And, um, and that's a difficult thing to reckon with, right? But it means that I, in my DNA, have that need to reconcile and to, to serve that community um, because relatives of mine also did a lot of harm in that community. So... So it's those things, but it's also the just the commitment to the people of the land. Like the more that you know, the more you, f I think, the more you feel committed to leveraging whatever privilege you have to um, making them visible and um, and supporting their efforts, because it's horrifying what happened to them, to what happened to us, um, and mostly we don't pay attention to it, and mostly we go on with our daily lives as if um, a genocide didn't occur right on this soil that we stand. So those are some of the things. Also my kid, she's the center of my life and her name's Alakoy, which means dolphin in our language. She's 17 and brilliant and just coming into her, um, her passion for learning our culture and being part of a native community at OSU. She just got accepted to Oregon State. And um, I want to, you know, I, I, I want her to have a better future as a young native woman than, than we had and that, you know, are certainly better than our, our recent ancestors.
I guess I would encourage your listeners to um, to log on to our website. Maybe you could donate uh, to some Native effort or, yeah, or buy some food from a Native uh, organic food seller. There's lots of ways that you can be in support of Native communities, and I would encourage you all to do that. And also to... Uh, frequenting native websites and purchasing their materials and donating to their to their nonprofits. I just want to encourage people to visit our website and um, and maybe come to our open enrollment. Um, it is January 23rd is our next and they're from 11 to 2 and very easy to register. Um, there's a there's a sliding scale and uh, registration is free for Native people. And so we usually have about half and half Native people and non-Native um, allies. Thank you so much, Dina Dark, for being on the Oregon Grapevine. I really appreciate your time and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live.